Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, another half an hour of science here on your radio box. My name is Chris, and this week I am talking to astrophysicist Ryan Shannon about a recent study where they they didn't find gravitational waves, and this was significant because it tells us something about supermassive black holes. Um, I know it sounds like a, a weird thing, but these are the... Sounds like they just didn't find anything, Chris. They look... Look, we have, we have a very good reason to believe that gravitational waves are, are real. They're just trying to find gravitational waves emitted from these um, yeah, these supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies. And when two galaxies combine, they're supposed to orbit each other and give off these, these waves. But they haven't found them. So this might tell us something about how prominent these things are. Anyway, that is the idea. But he'll explain all that to us uh, today. So don't... You, you wait and listen, Claire. Okay, okay. Um, what have you got for us, Claire? Well, today I'm going to be having a look at some of um, the most extreme life on our planet. From the 1990s, these uh, species that live <laughs> yeah, on they, pexy maps. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. They love bungee jumping. Mountain you biking. Know, mountain biking. They are protein full bars. on protein bars. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. okay. Yep. Awesome. It's going to be good. Right, it's going to be extreme. Stu. Yes. Stu, what are you going to do? Well, this week I'm catching up with Brant Gibson, who is from RMIT University, who is working on nanoscale biophotonics. And we heard a little bit about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. But uh, he's got an event coming up for Melbourne Knowledge Week, and we'll just be talking about what they study and what they'll be talking about on the panel. Well, on with the show. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and uh, today I am talking to Ryan Shannon, who is a research fellow at Curtin University and the CSIR Astronomy and Space Science. Uh, Welcome to Lost in Science, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Uh, Now, I understand you have done some work on detecting gravitational waves and not finding them, which is a kind of a significant result to be doing this in the, um, the centenary of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Yes, uh, it's very exciting to be studying gravitational waves, or in our case, the absence of gravitational waves. Uh, We've been searching for them for uh, nearly a decade now and haven't found any, but our result shows that the absence of gravitational waves is astrophysically interesting. Okay. Before we get any further, can you explain what gravitational waves are? So gravitational waves are distortions in space-time. So whenever you have two objects that are accelerating around each other, they're going to produce gravitational waves. These gravitational waves travel at the speed of light from where they're emitted and through the universe. The, one, the interesting thing about gravitational waves, or the challenging thing, is that they're very, very weak and very hard to detect. Right. So, yeah, people try to build buoys into detectors on Earth, don't they, to look at yeah. changes in, in distances between things? Because they're, they're ripples in space, aren't they? That's effectively what they're... 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's basically what they are. So what will happen is is that if a gravitational wave was traveling between two objects, the distance between the two objects would change, and it would be get uh, a bit larger or a bit smaller depending on the direction that the gravitational wave was coming from. Okay. So tell me, how did you look for gravitational waves yourselves? Yeah. So what we've done is we've used the CSRO Parkes radio telescope. And we've studied these objects called pulsars. So pulsars are rapidly rotating neutron stars, dense objects, mm-hmm. uh, heavier than the sun, and only about the size of the Sydney CBD. Uh, okay, so pretty, yeah, pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, so that makes them very stable. And the, the amazing thing about pulsars is that they emit radio waves out of their poles. And when these radio waves, the, as, as the star rotates, uh, if this radio beam passes the Earth, what we see is a pulse, somewhat like you would see a flash of light when a lighthouse came by. Okay. So when, where do the gravitational waves come in, you, you might ask? And the answer is that what will happen is, is we're able to very accurately measure the times that these pulses arrive. So what will happen is, is that if a gravitational wave passes between the pulsar and the Earth, the times that these pulses will get to us will change just because the distance between the pulsar and the earth changes. Okay, because normally the pulsars are incredibly accurate, aren't they? The, the pulses come at a very regular rate. Yeah, exactly. The pulses are very highly predictable. With, for the best pulsars, we're able to keep track of the pulses over decades, decades, times, over hundreds of billions of pulses. Okay, so I guess what you're, what you're saying then with this then is you didn't find any change in the, um, in the frequency yeah. of the pulsars. Yeah, it, that's exactly it. What we're, we're looking for is a rumble of gravitational waves, uh, a rumble in, in, the, in the arrival times of the pulses that was caused by the gravitational waves. Okay. What should be causing these gravitational waves out of interest? Yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing to me, is that what we're looking for is gravitational waves produced by supermassive black hole binaries. So what we've got is, over the entire age of the universe, galaxies uh, form and, are, are, and merge and, and grow bigger. And inside these galaxies, we expect to see supermassive black holes. And when, when galaxies collide, these black holes should also merge. So what, we, what we're looking for is a sing- signature of two supermassive black holes. Now, we're not talking about things that are the mass of the sun. We're talking about things that are billions of times of the mass of the sun. When these uh, supermassive black holes orbit each other, we expect them to produce gravitational waves. So we're, we're expecting to see the signature of all the supermassive black hole binaries in the universe in our data, and we didn't see anything. Okay, so a bit of a surprising result. Yeah. Again, people have come up with very uh, strong predictions about what, what, this, what this thing should look like. It's one of the big open questions in astronomy these days is how, how do you end up with galaxies that look like the Milky Way? How do galaxies start from you know, very high redshift very in you know, the very early in the universe and grow to become bigger and bigger and bigger? And how do the supermassive black holes inside of them grow as well? Okay. And yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And with our research, we're able to understand how these galaxies and the supermassive black holes grow in a different way and provide a different constraint on what it, how exactly how exactly the universe works. Okay. So now I guess the first thing that a lot of people think of when they hear a result like yours is that we haven't detected gravitational waves mm-hmm. is to say that they don't exist. And I know that there are a lot of people, still, even though it's 100 years since Einstein's work, a lot of people are still keen to prove him wrong. But this is not what this is saying, is it? No. 
we're very certain that gravitational waves do exist. What we're doing is we're using the fact that we know they exist to understand how the universe works. So the absence of gravitational waves doesn't mean that Einstein is wrong. What it means is that our understanding of the universe is wrong. Right. Because yeah, I believe there was a Nobel Prize already given for the indirect detection of gravitational waves, wasn't there? Exactly. And co coincidentally, that was given to people who were studying pulsars. So, in fact, gravitational waves can be emitted by neutron stars themselves. So if, you have, if you have a neutron star in a binary uh, so pulsars are neutron stars, and if you have a neutron star in a binary with another neutron star, you'd expect to see gravitational waves. Right. So, yeah, I believe there was evidence of gravitational waves being given off from those. And so this is what you're looking, expecting the similar kind of evidence from black holes, but exactly. you're just not finding it. Exactly. And, well, that, that pulsar binary system within our galaxy, we're looking for these gravitational waves that are coming from much more distant places, right. billions of light years from the Earth. Okay, so this, does this suggest then that perhaps those binary supermassive black holes aren't as common as you might have thought? Yeah, we, when we started thinking about this, this was the big question is what does it, what, what, what do we, what does it tell us and when, what can we go and change the models for, to lower the, the, the prediction for the signal? And one thing could be that the number of these supermassive black hole binaries is smaller than people have previously predicted. But there's, other, there's a few other things that could, could be at play as well. These supermassive black hole binaries are expected to reside in the centers of galaxies. And mm -hmm. if you've ever looked at the center of our galaxy, you know there's a lot of light there and there, it's really hard to see. Uh, that also means there's, there's lots of stars and gas likely to be in the centers of galaxies. And okay. that, could play, that could play a role in making the signal weaker. Okay. Well, it sounds like there are a few possibilities there. So look, I hope that uh, with your further research, you, you find an answer to this. Yeah, uh, the ultimate goal would be to actually, uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to detect this, these gravitational waves, and when we do so, we'll have a better understanding of exactly how galaxies grow and how supermassive black holes grow. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was uh, Ryan Shannon from Curtin University and CSIRO. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So with the discovery of uh, liquid water on Mars, uh, inevitably there is talk about what life on Mars would look like. Mm -hmm. And not just in an existential David Bowie sort of way, um, but actually could life as we know it already be living on Mars? But interestingly enough, the best way forward to answer this question comes by looking introspectively at life on Earth, um, and not just in the narrow range of environmental conditions we're used to, but by looking at the extremophiles. Um, now, this isn't people who wear sweatbands and, you know, who are really, 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 mm. really into extreme sport. Rollerblades and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Street luge. Parkour. <laughs> <laughs> They're, um, so the extremophiles are organisms that live in conditions where most organisms would undoubtedly die. Mm -hmm. So today I want to take the first step to asking um, where life can live. Um, spoiler alert, almost anywhere in most places. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Certainly um, places that we can't live. Exactly. Hmm. All places that we can't live. 
Uh, Firstly, we have the extreme temperature lovers. These are the psychrophiles who are able to exist and reproduce in temperatures below minus 15 degrees. Wow. Many of them produce antifreeze proteins that prevent them from freezing solid. And like the bacteria Chrysiobacterium greenlandensis, um, which is found 3,000 metres under the ice in Greenland. Wow. Yeah, and can exist and happily live there for thousands of years. 3,000 metres. 3,000 metres. Three kilometres under the ice. The ice is that deep? Yeah. The whole Arctic circle freezes, so... But I thought it was... a lot of water. Really? Okay. Yeah, it is a lot of water. Also, there's glaciers and stuff in Greenland, so... Okay. Mm. 3,000 metres of glacier, yeah. Um, Now, the opposite of psychrophiles... Uh, the extreme heat lovers. Can you have a guess of what they're called? Um, they are thermophiles. Ah, of course. So they're um, organisms that can survive and thrive between 45 to 122 degrees. Similar to their cold-loving cousins, they've developed special proteins that allow them to live in the extreme heat. Right. And can live in heat that's equivalent to the boiling point of water and have been found in hot springs, crater lakes, peat bogs, and superheated hydrothermal vents deep in oh, the ocean floor. The mm. black smokers and those sort of things. Yeah. They actually helped us create or we'll get to a technological breakthrough in genetic analysis. The thermophiles The have. thermophiles, yeah. There's a, the... uh, a bacteria called Thermus aquaticus. Tac polymerase. Tac polymerase. That's where it comes from. Yeah. yeah. So you couldn't do PCR reactions before they discovered Without this thing. Without tac polymerase. Yeah. Oh, extremophiles. Helping humankind. Amazing. So that's, that's temperature. But as you know, extreme environments can take many forms. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the alkalophiles. Oh, alkaline conditions? Yep, yep. Organisms with the ability to survive and thrive in pH values from 9 to 11. So that's extremely basic conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so like and not... caustic soda conditions. Yeah. 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 So not basic as in like really easy, but basic as... <laughs> as in, yes. Yeah, a base. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A chemical base. Yeah. So these... All your base that belong to us. Sorry. These guys have evolved special cytoplasm to protect themselves from damage. And the opposite to those base-loving critters. Um, acidophiles? Or? Acidophiles, that's right. So extreme, <laughs> extreme acids. They live in highly acidic environments. One of particular interest is the Ferroplasma acidophilium, which is found in mine drainage and waste treatment plants and actually extracts its energy from iron, essentially eating the metal and leaving behind rust. I imagine because we have bacteria that, like Helicobacter pylori that lives in our stomach and causes ulcers that it can stand acid as well. That's right. It would be a type of extremophile as well, mm. living right under our noses, down our esophagus, yeah. in our stomach. <laughs> quite quite a long way <laughs> like, below <laughs> our nose. <laughs> like, thanks for that anatomy lesson. <laughs> Um, so the list goes on with halophiles. Can anyone salt? Salt, very good. Organisms that can survive in extremely salty environments, so five to ten times saltier than ocean water. They coat themselves in proteins to, that allow them to block the salt from entering their cells. So this would be that would be a potential Martian life form. They'd For have to be they'd water, have to be yeah. halophiles to live on. That's right. Mars in that be, yeah. water, yeah. yeah. One of particular note is Dunaliella selena. 
um, which lives in salt ponds, and it does that by concentrating beta carotene in its cell walls. Mm. So it ends up having this nice orangey pink color. Lovely. Fun fact. Is that where you get orangey pink salt? Himalayan salt, maybe. So it's really bacteria flavored salt. <laughs> mm, delicious. <laughs> delicious. Bit of extra protein. Um, next, we have the xerophiles. They don't like anything. <laughs> No, very low water conditions. Very good. Yeah, Stu, you are winning. Yeah. Um, Yeah, (laughs) organisms that can grow and reproduce in conditions um, with little water available to them. Is that zero with a Z or an X? Um, An X. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they've evolved means to store and conserve any water that they encounter, so it's available to them when needed. Mm -hmm. And what about the barophiles? Barophiles. High pressure. Very good, Chris. Oh, it's Trust neck and neck. Trust the physicist to get that one. <laughs> so this is organisms that live in highly pressurized environments, such as the bottom of the ocean. They have a waxy cell layer that protects them against crushing pressures and the extreme temperatures found at the bottom of the ocean. So one barophile is the Halomonas salaria, and it requires pressure 1,000 times found the pressure that we um, that we're under the surface of Earth 1,000 times. And if it doesn't have that, then it, you know, can't exist. Does it explode? Well, I, I guess it just falls in a clump or... Mm, yeah. Like a blobfish. Like the blobfish, exactly. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I've got in mind, yeah. Okay, and just finishing up, the endoliths. Yes, they live inside rock. Yes! Oh, Stu wins. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> um, organisms with the ability to... To survive within solid rock or deep within the Earth's crust. So some endoliths have been found as deep as two miles or four kilometres in the Earth's crust, maybe a bit over four kilometres. And some they, scientists they, they'd think... They probably only have been found as deep as we've dug, which is... <laughs> we've done a story on that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, scientists think that they might be um, possibly found on Mars as well. In Mars. In Mars. <laughs> Four kilometres below the surface. <laughs> in Mars, yeah. Um, so as you can imagine, there are quite a few organisms that tick quite a few of these boxes, but the organism that takes the cake as the most extreme is a somewhat adorable water bear or by any other name. Tardigrade. The tardigrade. That's right. So the tardigrade is an eight-legged critter um, that has been sighted on top of mountains in the deep ocean, in rainforests, in the Antarctic, they can withstand temperatures from absolute zero to boiling point of water, pressures six times greater than the deepest ocean trenches, ionizing radiation, vacuums of outer space, and they can go without food or water for almost 10 years, drying out to the point where they are three, only 3% or less water. And then when they do dry out that much, they then can rehydrate forage, and reproduce. That is incredible. It is incredible. So knowing this, I'm going to go on record now and say that if we do end up finding life on another planet, chances are it's probably going to be a water bear. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science.
So I have in the studio with me today Associate Professor Brant Gibson, who is the node leader at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Nanoscale Biophotonics. I might start by asking, Brant, what is an ARC Centre of Excellence? Well, well, thanks very much, uh, Stuart, for this opportunity to be here. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, look, uh, yeah, an ARC Centre of Excellence, well, ARC actually stands for Australian Research Council, and a Centre of Excellence is actually a seven-year research program that uh, really is a flagship program for the ARC, which involves many institutions within Australia and many uh, international um, partners as well. So it's a, it's a seven-year program. And unlike some other programs from the ARC, which typically run for sort of three to four to five years, this gives us an opportunity really to tackle some some problems which which are just not really possible in that three to three to four to five year period. We can really sink our teeth into into problems that that take that longer time frame. So it's sort of you know expanding on something that someone could do as a, say as a PhD candidate can't tackle these problems because they take too long to study. Exactly. And, and, and so not only do we have the time frame, we have uh, obviously quite a considerable amount of funding, which enables us to have a, have a centre of a, more than 100 people across our, our partners and uh, within Australia and internationally. Uh, so we have quite a, a diverse team of you know, more than 100 people uh, in the areas of, of, of physics, chemistry and biology uh, and, and everything in between. So we can really sink our teeth into, into some challenging problems. So you're the node leader at the Centre for Nanoscale Biophotonics. Now, we did speak to Andy, who's a colleague of yours, a few weeks ago. But for those people who might have missed that, what is nanoscale biophotonics? That's an excellent question, Stu. So look, what we really do is we look at really small stuff in the body using lasers, optical fibres and other high-tech kit. So the nanoscale bits, the is the particles that are or, or materials that are at the, at the nanoscale, the bio bits, the things inside the body, and, and the photonics is we use light, we use optical fibers and light um, through microscopes to to look at um, biological materials. So I, I guess one of my questions is: this is kind of pretty up to the minute science. How did you assemble the team? You know, people didn't think 10 years ago, oh, I'm going to study nanoscale biophotonics. So where did they come from? It's a, that's another excellent question. Now, I mean, I suppose traditionally a lot of research has happened within the disciplines of physics and maybe chemistry and biology on its own. But I think the unique aspect of our centre is that we're looking at the, at the areas of research and opportunities in between the disciplines. So we're a very transdisciplinary uh, a centre. Uh, so... I think it's the merging of those of those areas enables us to look at the at, at materials down at the nanoscale, but we're then uh, looking at how those materials and light uh, can uh, you know give us extra information of uh, inside the body. So when when you're talking on the nanoscale, how small are we talking there? Yeah. So if you divide a meter ruler up into one billion pieces with a B, not an M, yeah. uh, then that's the size of a nanometer. To give us, give it, put it also in perspective, if the diameter of the Earth was uh, equivalent to one metre, then a nan- nanometer would be the size of a cricket ball. Right, so it's pretty tiny. Exactly. And, and, and then just to give you another idea of, of scale, we are then looking at nanomaterials as sensing uh, tools inside uh, cells and inside the body, and a cell at that scale would be roughly the size of the MCG. Wow. So, yeah. so these, these are particles and objects that are smaller than the eye can see. 
how does light even interact with objects that small and and how is that relevant to us yeah look so what we so these materials that we work with they 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 fluoresce so they they give off uh, their own light if we shine uh, light onto these materials using lasers uh, then then certain materials certain particles they they're effectively like uh, nanoscale uh, light sources or light bulbs uh, or nano lamps uh, so they they actually fluoresce and and their light emitting properties can change depending on uh, the environment that they're actually living in okay now you are involved in an event for Melbourne Knowledge Week. Melbourne Knowledge Week is a pretty huge event, actually, with um, contributions from all over the place, from Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, Melbourne University, uh, all sorts of people getting involved there. Your event's on the 20th of October. So what can people expect if they come along to that? Look, uh, yeah, so Melbourne Knowledge Week is a great opportunity for, for people and, and, and industry members to, to come into the university environment to understand uh, a little more about uh, the type of work and research that we're, that we're undertaking within RMIT University and more broadly across the centre. So, yeah, we've got an event coming, uh, coming up on the 20th of, uh, of October. It's a breakfast uh, event starting at 7.30am uh, in the morning at RMIT called Up Close and Revealed, Life at the Nanoscale. And so what we're looking uh, to, to do is have a panel of professionals that uh, will discuss how new nanoscale optical sensors will influence medical diagnostics and the understanding of health and disease. So it's actually talk, you're talking about how this can be applied in the real world, in medicine and, and actually out in the industry. That's exactly right. So, so I mean, the areas that the centre is really focusing on at this stage are the areas of fertility, chronic pain and heart disease. And so we're putting together a panel of professionals across the RMIT and the centre which we're, we're going to discuss the, these areas in detail and how the science is, is going to really relate to uh, to these these areas uh, that, that people are familiar with. And especially, I mean, chronic pain and heart disease, huge problems, tough to treat, don't really know how to get around them. So that's uh, pretty important research right there. Definitely. Look, especially, I mean, the area in the chronic pain, for example, I mean, our, our, our dream is to really have a uh, understand the differences between uh, you and myself and, and, and men and women uh, and, and really have a ultimately a tailored uh, um, pain um, response system that, uh, for every single person on the planet. I mean, that would be the ultimate aim, well, how, how we can achieve that how well we can get down that path in the time frame we've got will, will remains to be seen, but but we're we're looking at understanding the chronic pain at the nanoscale to hopefully one day understand the, 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 these pain uh, responses between uh, every single person on the planet. Sounds like really interesting stuff, Brant. Thank you for joining us again on the show, Brant Gibson from the Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence in Nanoscale Biophotonics, and if you want to get along to that panel it's on the 20th of october at rmit if you search on the internet for melbourne knowledge week and life at the nanoscale you should stumble across something there and we'll put it up on our facebook as well thanks again for joining us brent fantastic thanks again for the opportunity cheers Okay, and that is it for Lost in Science for this week, where we have we have learned about the most extreme organisms on the planet. We have learned about gravitational waves and the most extreme events in the cosmos, and 
We've learned about extreme supercomputing. Extreme well, supercomputing. What an extreme show. It is extreme show, yeah. Lost in Science, the most extreme show on the Community Radio Network, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we have a blog, we have a Twitter, we have a Facebook. We also have a radio program that you can do at the same time next week where Stu, Claire and Chris will get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.